listening to The Witness Podcast with Carissa Lee, Alison Crogan, and I'm Robert Reed. Today we thought we would talk about the ways that change is smothered or voices are quietened and silenced in the creative communities and particularly in the live performance community in Australia and in Melbourne. This is a little bit sparked by the response to Emily Collier's piece about unfunded excellence, but is of course bubbling under and simmering under a lot of issues at the moment in, uh, well, in the world generally. So I'm going to throw over to you guys and say, what do you think? Well, one of the things we were thinking about was free speech. Mm. And I mean, it's a little bit of a continuation of what Carissa and I were talking about last month, about what political correctness is Mm. and what it means and is it a thing free speech is one of those phrases used in the culture wars very often it's not about free speech at all Mm. I mean there's another phrase freedom of expression Mm. which is something that's defended by people like amnesty and so on and so forth but free speech seems to be very particular thing that masquerades as everyone must be free to express whatever they like but actually is code for only some people can. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I guess we were just wanting to open this out a bit and talk about how these things work. And it's kind of odd that this idea of freedom of speech has kind of extended to freedom of behaviour, which in a way has allowed for a lot of mistreatment and a little bit of an abuse of that term in a way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we all agree about that. Yeah, we all agree that's not a great thing. So I guess once we sort of establish that this thing happens, it becomes a matter of looking at the mechanisms by which this notion of free speech and also its kind of corollaries of what can and can't be said around free speech, what kind of speech curtails free speech, etc., comes with a bunch of mechanisms that are about who can speak and what it's okay to do as a response, etc., and how discourse is constructed. Mm. Well, I suppose the classic thing here is me too. Yeah. And there has been quite a bit of difference between Australia and the United States and Britain in terms of the responses to me too. And in Australia, it's been relatively muted apart from a couple of celebrity cases like the Don Burke revelations that came out under Mm. Tracy Spicer's investigation into Me Too. But in terms of, you know, how things have rippled through, say, the Australian performance community, it's been pretty muted compared to, Mm. say, Britain with Mm. the whole kind of thing with the Royal Court having an open day, uh, inviting people to bring their stories to the Royal Court as read out at the open day, all the companies coming forward and making statements that was some pretty great leadership from the Royal Court mm. and in America. But here we haven't had anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it's not from lack of trying, though. I mean, the MEAA had since last year been trying to get some kind of changes made to contracts and that kind of thing, particularly with theatre companies. I'm not quite yeah. sure what the progress is with film companies. But, yeah, they've been trying to ensure that people are well protected against things like sexual harassment, unwarranted touching, even just and bullying, like, yeah, yeah, like bullying in general as yeah. well, because yeah, the numbers were staggering with the survey that they conducted last year, showing that forty percent of respondents have had to deal with sexual harassment, sixty one percent have had to deal with suggestive comments or jokes, and I understand within the acting community, especially because we're all such creative, free people, it would be a really hard thing to police and a really hard thing to sort of keep a hang of onto, but 
with this idea of changing protocols and clauses and things like that, I think they're trying to make a step in the right direction of at least preventing it. But as far as people coming forward about what's been happening, I don't know. We have no. been very quiet about that, yeah. Exactly. I mean, but that was predating the whole Me Too, Harvey Weinstein thing anyway. That was something that was ongoing with the NRA because that is a problem. Yeah. But the instinct in not only with Me Too but with so many other things is just to quietly, quietly, let's talk not in public about mm. whatever problem is going on. And there's a kind of fear there, isn't there? It's not just the obvious fear of making waves, which is one reason why people don't. I mean, people who do talk about problems are then seen as the, the problem, as Sarah Ahmed, I don't know if you know her, wonderful feminist thinker working in Britain. She's got a whole thing about how complaint becomes a problem. Mm. She left academia because she was a diversity consultant at a university in England and she ended up resigning quite noisily because she said she was just there to help continue the problem actually. She mm. was being like the band-aid over a problem that the university could say, well, we're dealing with a problem, we have our diversity officer actually not do anything to structurally change the problem. Mm. It's a very corporate response to these kind of problems actually and has to do with a kind of systemic approach to adapting and moving forward in a system. So once a system has been set up, be it a corporation or an organism or what have you, it exists to kind of perpetuate itself as that pattern. Mm. And so when things happen that they can patch and make a response to and say, that's been fixed, it doesn't fix the culture because the mm. culture itself just carries on. It's got this add-on there that you can point to to say something has been tried, like we have a protocol or a process. Yeah, in that's the, right. But this isn't just about addressing processes and make – it's good that those are being written. It's frankly staggering that in large-scale companies – like the ones we've been talking about, that these legal kind of parameters don't already exist. Mm. But even given that, those are sometimes a band-aid as well, right? Like yeah. it actually is about changing the culture, which again, we sort of saw a bit in the, I think, Michaela Bollin's article about leading ladies and the lack mm. of women in leadership positions in the arts. But that, well, was, that was to do with the Helpman Awards and that, which yes. were almost completely white, almost yeah. and very male. And we were talking about this in response to another one of the ways that things, I was saying earlier that democracy dies in darkness, right? That notion of a big noise is made and a noise is made in response to say we're going to do something and then nothing happens. Because we were talking about mm. the Australian Women Directors Guild and the credibly male, and I think from memory, incredibly white and male seasons at Belfast. certain Sydney companies mm. that I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but I'm fairly certain. We well, the, the, the sticking Arnold. point was 2009. Mm. And the notorious announcement of the Belvoir's 2009 season where they made the huge mistake of bringing all the directors up oh, on yeah, stage. Right. Mm. And what happened right. was there was one woman among all these men. They were all dressed the same too. And they, they were all oh, dressed wow. the same, skinny. Skinny black jeans, that was yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Oh, wow. You know, the Wunderkind thing. And it was just that visual representation. Like nobody thought about it reading the program or mm. things like that. But as soon as all these people are on stage, it just became horribly obvious mm. that something was going on here. And that sparked a whole lot of discussion and, you know, mm. panels and this, that, the other. And here we are. It was 2009. It's mm. like almost a decade later. Yeah. And what's changed since then? I mean, people have made lots of noises, as you were saying, about, you know, we are fixing up, we're doing this, we're doing that. But what has changed? 
essentially Which goes back to what it was. That's right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of noise being made about Indigenous representation at the moment and people of colour, and that's the thing at the moment. Yeah, definitely. It um, seems like we're quite on trend. <laughs> and, and that's important. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that shouldn't be done, but it has to be thought about as a structural thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I remember reading something from Patricia Cornelius, actually. It might, it might even have been an interview where she was saying this is a great time for female playwrights to come out and write stuff and put your stuff out there because we're on trend at the moment. So no, just that's the first Ah, that's, first that's the interview, ah. yes. That's <laughs> there we go. I thought I was Promoting a bit of witness there. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think. But, yeah, like she was saying that, yeah, it's a great time to come forward with our stories because women, everyone wants women. Everyone wants more women's stories. So may as well take advantage of the fact that we're kind of chic right now. Yeah, but, mm. the, you know, the problem with being chic is that it passes. It passes. It's, yeah. you know, it's a variation from the norm yeah it's it become yeah, yeah it's yeah. like the other it's the token programming choice yeah which and the is problem with that is that it doesn't make lasting change right so we just collapse back into not only collapse back into but perpetuate even in those seasons the same problems the same structural problems but because i think of as well intentioned as they were the inside seasons at playbox in the early 2000s particularly the black inside season with four or five Indigenous works mm, programmed yeah. as a way of being able to go, look here, we're promoting and pro creating a space in this sort of slightly ghettoized, out of the main mm. season kind of space, which yeah. means it's great. It's kind of the well-intentioned lip service. Yeah. It was it was great. And having said that, with that program, I think only one of those playwrights is still working. Yeah, and, yeah. And okay. that's yeah. really yeah. terrible because they need, there needs to be longevity in the planning for these writers and to help them do more work. Mind yeah. you, that reflects a much more systemic problem with playwriting. Yeah, true. Um, I, I remember going through Australian playwrights, almost none of them write after about 40. <laughs> like almost oh. none of them. Because there is no mechanism in Australia for playwrights work to return to a stage yeah. for any longevity of production. Only, you know, the vast minority get more than one season. Yeah. Mm. And so that's magnified with people who are perceived as minorities who get less of a chance anyway, yeah. which includes women and people of colour. That's a bit of a problem to return to what we were saying about not making waves is this sense that the whole kind of arts community already feels under pressure, under yeah. threat, and this makes it much more difficult to address the actual structural problems because what's already being done is already kind of marginal. So I think that mitigates against full and honest discussion of these things. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember hearing an Indigenous woman say, I don't want to kick up a fuss because it's hard to get work as a woman, it's hard to get work as an Indigenous person, but if I'm one of those people that kicks up a fuss and calls people out on stuff, no one is ever going to employ me. And it seems like there's this whole new wave of marginalisation, like this, this is the new minority, is these people who are brave enough to come out and say what is going on and the behaviour that's happening they're now being held accountable more so than their perpetrators. And it's like there's this new kind of minority that's happening in Australia. I don't think it's new. I think what happened before, I mean, it was something I observed in criticism. So when I started reviewing, I was like 27. So I was very young and naive and blah, blah, and writing for a national magazine. And just in the three years that I was taking notice of everything that was going on before I resigned, there were at least two critics maybe three that were let go by national papers. So this well predates digital 
media. It was always when someone was being noisy and, of course, in my case, when I offended people, there was a great big fuss because my editor wouldn't quietly sack me. But the other people were quietly sacked when pressure was placed on them. And I think that's how it's worked. People who did make a fuss, who did object to, say, bad behaviour or bad treatment, they were just labelled troublemakers mm. and the whisper would go around and suddenly there was no work. Yeah. I think that's pretty much how it happens in... It's certainly what happened in Hollywood, as we saw with Weinstein, mm. but it's what happens in cultures where these things are not out there. And in Australia, where whistleblower culture, you know, whistleblowers always, always suffer. And that's being legislated for now in very scary ways. So that's like, at a national level, it's a problem. In a cultural level, it inculcates these assumptions and behaviours that just everyone gets more scared. Yeah. You know, there isn't courage and leadership and that makes it very difficult for people who, you know, are just perhaps not very important and have no power to then speak out. Do you think, I mean, this is a, this might be a bit of a naive question, but do you reckon that if a white fella was like a man, a white straight man were to call someone out on something, that the repercussions for him would be as bad as it would be for a woman? They can be, yeah. yeah. Depends okay. on who's their grandfather. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, the punishment can be just as severe. Wow. But I think there's bigger implications. It's the same thing as multiplying effects. Yeah. The person who might be making those waves. And it, sometimes if you're a white man making waves, that can be a means of notoriety that can work to your advantage as well. Yeah. But you I have, have seen people, to, yeah, uh, yeah. Use it as a, as a, as a, a way of getting attention, but then you can smooth the waters and do all the kind of networking sort of stuff. And yeah. there are a handful of people who are just assholes and can't help it. They end up not getting yeah. all the work. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's complex. And, and each situation, that's the other thing, you can't really generalise because each situation has its own pressures and particularities. But as a general thing, yeah, Australian culture doesn't talk yeah. about yeah. stuff. It's Yeah, yeah it's, it's so strange to me because... I mean, if you look at over in the States and what you were saying about the UK, people calling out and starting this whole discussion are becoming motivators for change, whereas people here are standing alone. Like, they're these islands of people, like, just sort of having to try and tread water and exist in this way. And it's so odd that we're so different in that way. Well, there are structural things, like our defamation laws yeah. are much worse than in Britain and America. As we know, there are two lawsuits, one with Jeffrey Rush, one with Craig McLaughlin, both going at the moment as a direct result of Me Too allegations. And that has a totally dampening effect on the whole discourse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't speak about it beyond noting that it exists for fear of getting sued, right? Well, mm. particularly yeah. on those things, but obviously anything that involves allegations of bad behaviour mm. is something that you should be careful about. But Which is what the legal process is set up for, but it's also, yeah. a, we know that the legal processes are powerfully constructed to privilege those who are already in power. Yeah, and it's also something that isn't necessarily a good process for any kind of sexual assault or harassment. Mm. It certainly doesn't work for women mm. or men who've suffered this and because it's an adversarial system and also, I think, because it's a carceral punishment system and I think... 
and the larger way, we just have to think about better ways of dealing yeah. with this kind of stuff. I think also just from a feminist point of view, I think it would be good, and it's probably the idealist in me talking, that if, if women could somehow support each other a little more at the moment there seems to be this it's kind of like this undercurrent of women who sort of give each other clues of who to be wary of and and what kind of behavior to expect which isn't necessarily the best way that this should be happening but it seems to be a way that we protect one another but yeah in situations where women are calling out this sort of behavior it would be good to see more women sort of binding together and and supporting each other this does happen yeah I mean I I see it happen all the time actually but Again, it's like you have to have a network. Yeah. And there are times when women supporting each other is seen as conspiratorial. Yeah. Or in some way unfair. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, yeah, there are real problems with things like the Whisper Network, which is a major way women protect each other and themselves. Mm. But it's a network that happens because there is no other alternative. Yeah. So over the years there hasn't been a means for people to address this stuff in ways that are actually effective there's protocols in place I suppose this is getting back to you know what's changed Mm. that you know we've got protocols we've got ethical things some of them are built into stuff but they don't seem to have actually changed anything Mm. do you think there's a bit more of a fear now with people like men who are behave a certain way they're actually a little do you think they're starting to be a bit more conscientious about that? I mean, they might even joke about it because I've seen some cases where that has happened and they've been like, oh, I better not say that because of this. Do you think that's a kind of effect? Like, I mean, it's not much, but do you well, think they're being a bit more aware? I do think there's been a bit of a sea change. I was talking to someone who who was saying how it's that sort of recognition. I think the thing about the whole Weinstein moment, and it was a moment, mm. is that suddenly it was like, I think, an entire kind of continents of women were totally triggered and going, oh, my God, that happened to me, yeah. <laughs> or recognising behaviour that they've kind of, we, you know, we've all gone, oh, yeah, that, you know, that's just how it is or just not talked about because that's just part of what we have to put up with. Mm. I mean, there was a Brazilian soccer news person talking on television about, you know, 30 women who report on the soccer were basically grabbed and groped while they were broadcasting. And so the Brazilians in particular got very angry about this and just saying when they saw one woman say, no, you are not allowed to do that because all this stuff happened on camera. And another woman was saying, and I suddenly realised, I just thought that was part of the job, you know, that I had to put up with that. And I realised I don't have to put up with that. Mm. And so I think that kind of thing actually is a real shift. I think a whole lot of people are saying, oh, my God, actually, this is not acceptable. I always accepted it as part of the texture of things, but it's actually not acceptable. Yeah. And I think there's a hell of a lot of working out to do, but that is a pretty significant shift. Yes, that's true. The picking up on the notion of not wanting to simply take it anymore and also speaking about the the whistleblower culture here and how people, how Australians have been taught to view whistleblowers, etc. And also drawing together that notion of silence around issues, silence around problems, etc. All, all makes me think of that really 
white European Australian thing, particularly for white men in Australia, white straight men, is silence around what you feel, the inability to not just talk about what you feel, but encounter problems and talk about them. It becomes very internalised, which to me is a thing that was kind of imposed on white Australia by England, because the culture of that kind of silent, brooding, good with his hands, but not very smart, mm. physical, etc., is a kind of colonisation of the white working class who were dumped here. Yeah, it's kind of like that stiff upper lip thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and these are all ways of keeping you quiet, so mm. that when the empire says, you go fight this war, you might go, oh, well, we don't put up with authority, but you still go and fight and die on a beach, right? Yeah. And that, I feel like, is part of what is coded into our laws around being able to speak back to power as well, and why those kind of liable laws and all that stuff are so strict here because it's a matter of keeping the colony quiet. Yeah, mm. definitely. And yeah. there's this idea of, I mean, in blackfella culture, we're a bit more vocal about this kind of stuff. I mean, there are certainly insidious things that aren't being spoken of and, you know, I guess it's that colonised influence where people just don't talk about certain things. But, yeah, predominantly we try and, and speak what's bothering us and it, it's really... Yeah, it's so strange to and me. And white culture seems to have a real big problem when you guys do that. Yeah. <laughs> strange. But does yeah. that make it, make it difficult in black culture to identify problems in black culture? Absolutely. And I think that's what kind of leads to the whole lateral violence thing is because there's a lot of mob in community don't necessarily want certain things spoken about or they don't think they're being spoken of in the right way. And it can, yeah, it can lead to a lot of animosity within communities. And it's, it's awful because in a way – colonization's winning it's it's definitely a device that's been used to sort of get us to fight each other in a way because it saves white fellas a job so yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah, really yeah. interesting and I feel like in a way that lateral violence is very much present in the theater community when it comes to the call-out culture or the whistleblower culture it feels like you can't necessarily do that because there's this sort of thing around knowing that you're not necessarily going to be supported if anything you're going to be torn down yeah it's such a competitive industry and it makes it really tricky to do and there's a suspicion around people who call stuff out as well, whether mm. it's being kind of whistleblowing or what have you, that's a sort of reverse crucible effect, right? Like that kind of notion of, well, you're only saying that to get revenge on X. Yes. yes. Which is... The constant calling kind of, into question of motives. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's always, it's so strange to me that the second, particularly when a woman says, oh, this happened, the first thing they're going to assume is that she's lying before the guy did the thing. It's yeah. so odd to me that that's the first place they go. It's like, oh, well, do you know she's telling the truth? It's like, whoa, why are you doubting her first? It's yeah. it's so odd to me that that person is the one being questioned first, yeah, yeah. that the victim's always kind of, yeah, being interrogated before the perpetrator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I wonder if that's an inheritance from that kind of paranoid communist era as well, right? And that it's been written into our culture in a three-act play that gets remounted over and over and over. <laughs> yeah. It's really boring it's really play. Boring. Mm. Be, honestly, that would make a much better play if you condensed it down to one act. But anyway. <laughs> a lot of plays are like that. Yeah. Mm. I, maybe that speaks to our lack of attention. <laughs> or maybe. I don't know. Something's... Oh, Punchy. I, just get it over with yeah. and say your thing, right? The succinct word God. has died. <laughs> I don't want to be getting out of the theatre at 12 o'clock. Come on, i got to go home. Yeah. Unless it's, <laughs> unless it's 14 hours long, then it's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that really true. Uh, yeah, this whole idea of not being able to trust someone's word uh, is just really odd. I mean, the, the being able to come out and say, look, this happened, takes so much bravery and the risk that comes with that. And yeah, yeah. you might not be out of work again. You might have people looking at you and treating you differently after this. That yeah, there, yeah, yeah. having to sort of go through all that, 
and then have people not even believe you as well. Yeah. I mean, these are those kind of mechanisms of silencing. Yeah, and it goes way beyond questions of sexual assault and harassment. Mm. I mean, there's the classic thing with rape victims that what were you doing, what you're wearing, why were you there, were you drunk? But that's kind of acts as a kind of metaphor for silencing wrongdoing. Yeah. I mean, anyone who is kind of questioning or opening a question that perhaps goes to the centre of how power operates in our society. Yeah, and the theatre culture kind of leaves that wide open too because we're a very touchy-feely mob, and yeah. which, you know, I love. But, you know, sometimes, particularly with smaller shows, you're all having to get changed in front of each other. You you know, everyone's having drinks all the time and that kind of thing. And it's sort of, if anything were to happen, people do go, oh, were you doing this, were you doing that? It's like, well, it's commonplace to do these things. It, it, there's... Why are you calling this into question when this is not the norm? Well, it acts as a perfect cover for some Absolutely. people, I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> for a moment of pausing because I'm like, no other workplace have I worked in is that okay? I couldn't imagine. Can you imagine hugging one of your students? No. No, right? No. I do know that when they were trying to put together protocols, people were looking very closely at protocols with sex workers. Yeah. Because the workplace safety for sex workers where the work is involves physical intimacy. Well there's um and I'm actually gonna be writing about this in the next article. There's a well not a protocol, but it's a kind of thing that sex workers use to give each other the heads up about clients that have been a bit oh, dodgy. Yes. Yeah, it's the ugly yeah. mugs thing. Yeah. And that there is kind of similar to how we as actresses and, and people working in the arts sort of give each other the heads up that, oh, this person is a little bit, you know, just be careful. But, yeah, they've had to sort of take it into their own hands because I imagine it's really tricky for sex workers trying to get assistance from cops and that sort of thing. I mean, look at Jill Ma's murderer. He had been reported to have assaulted several sex workers. Yeah. And I I can only imagine the uh, how hard it would have been for them to report that and be taken it's, seriously. Well, in Victoria, because sex work is decriminalised, it actually makes a difference. In places where sex work is criminalised, mm. it becomes a real, real issue. But there's still that question of, you know, someone who's involved in sex work trying to prosecute a rape case. Yeah. Mm, given the vanishingly small number of rape cases that are actually successful yeah. out of the really tiny percentage that actually go to court, etc. Yeah. And again, this is coming back to how things are structured doesn't work or is wasted against or rather the kind it works of and all too well. Yes, it, yeah, well just for the wrong right, people. But but mm. you know, the need to rethink things at the structural level remains urgent because we can keep talking, we can keep having protocols and we can keep holding panels and so on and so forth. But until you change those actual structural bases of why these things keep recurring, we're going to be sitting here in 10 years' time saying, well, 10 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah, yeah. And on that happy note, I think we'll bring it to a close there. We'd love to hear what you think. It'd be great to get you guys to post comments after the podcast and leave yeah. your thoughts. There's some really interesting stuff. We may respond to it in the following podcast. I'm not going to promise that, you know say what you say but it would be fantastic to get people to comment on the podcast and share their thoughts on this and any of these are kind of interesting knotty issues that we all face and then realistically only get solved together so if you haven't already subscribe to witness performance by going to witnessperformance.com you have been listening to the witness podcast with carissa lee allison Crogan, sound by ben keen and i'm robert reed thank you and join us next month